Good morning, everyone. If you're new with us this morning, I'm Kurt, and we are going to look at the passage we just read. We're actually going to look at chapters 22, 23, and 24, um, but uh, we're going to go quickly through 22 and quickly through 23 and really land in 24. Uh, this is the last talk in our series on Joshua, and then next week we start a series on Mark, chapters 9 to 16, and it's called Just, Just Jesus. Uh, and so for about nine weeks, we're going to look at Mark's gospel leading up to the death of Jesus. And in particular, just look simply at Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, and how he changes your life. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to have a look at this section in Joshua. Father God, we just praise you for this chance to sit and have you speak to us this morning. And so we're desperate to hear from you, God. We want to sit under your word and have you change us. And so we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a few worse. By the way, I have a live audience here this morning for the first time. So Tom and Jenny are here, uh, which is exciting. And Caleb, so three people. It feels almost like church. Uh, anyway, there are a few worse shows on TV than Married at First Sight. Uh, it is a terrible, most likely contrived uh, look at relationships where strangers get married and live for, with each other for 10 weeks. Um, I have boycotted it twice, you should know. And I've gone back to watch the following season. Uh, I even put out a Facebook there saying, hashtag boycott maths. I did that a couple of times. Uh, but in the midst of that upside down morality that they have on that show, they have this weekly episode of drama called the commitment ceremony, uh, where the question is asked to both participants in the marriage or in the fake marriage, uh, where will you stay committed to this relationship? Uh, in the passage we read this morning, we read the drama of a commitment ceremony, not as trashy as the one you see on, on Married at First Sight, uh, but still it is a commitment ceremony. Will God's people remain committed to him as their God? Will they be faithful to God alone? Will they be faithful to God alone? Now, if you're new with us, the last, uh, I think it's been not, uh, last six or seven weeks, we've been looking at the book of Joshua. And so we started at the beginning of our series by doing a bit of an overview of where we're up to so far. And we started from page one, where we saw a holy, page one of the Bible, to see a holy, unique, perfect God creating a holy, good place uh, for people to enjoy with him. All right, that was right in the beginning, Genesis chapter one. But then chapter three, humanity rejects that holy God to try to enjoy life without him. And therefore, they are, as a consequence of that, uh, of their unholiness, of being of not being perfect, they're cut off from his good place. But from chapter 12, God initiates a plan uh, through a man named Abraham and his family to create a new people and bring them back to his presence. And so beginning in Exodus, he saves his people from slavery. Uh, he binds themselves to him in what's called a covenant or like a marriage to this people, like a special, unique relationship. He makes a covenant with them. And then he says, live faithful to me and according to my good way to live, and my presence will be with you, and I'll take you into my special land. And so in Joshua, we have the story of them going into the special land. God brings them in to the special land of Israel. And so a quick overview of Joshua. In the first section, chapters 1 to 4, you have God's people entering the land. Chapters 5 to 11, you have Israel conquering the land. All right, so the enemy armies in there, they take over the land. And chapters 12 to 21, the land is divided and allotted, and they're the places where they would inherit the land. And at the end of chapter 21, it says this, Joshua 21, 43, it says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he'd sworn to give their forefathers, 
and they took possession of it and settled there. Now, at this point of the story, it sounds like happily ever after, doesn't it? It sounds, and they lived happily ever after. But what sounds like the end of one story is actually the beginning of another story. Up to chapter 22, the focus has been on getting into this special land. From chapter 2 onwards, it's about staying in the land. It's about staying, remaining in the land in relationship with God. And so in chapter 22, the tribes whom God said could could settle outside, uh, 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 east of the Jordan, so outside the promised land, they go back to the other side of the Jordan. Chapter 23, which we read just then, picks up the story actually sometime later towards the end of Joshua's life and where he gathers the nations for this final farewell speech and he reminds them they need to be faithful to God alone or they would not remain in the land. And so 23 verse 11, Joshua says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground the Lord God has given you. Now, so this is, this is some time later. Uh, the people had, in a sense, been sent out with different allotments of the land that God had given them. But as you keep reading through, you see that although some of the nations, as they went out, went into battle against the enemy armies and, and kind of took control of the land, some tribes have just decided, we're just going to live among them. We'll just leave them there. They'll, they'll be happy, we'll be happy, and we'll be comfortable. Joshua says to the people in chapter 23, don't let those nations that you're allowing to live there enable you, to, uh, sorry, lead you into worshipping their gods. Because if you do, the same God who brought you into this land will take you out of this land as well. All right, he'll remove you from this land. And so chapter 23 is this warning to the people of God. And then you go to chapter 24 and you have the, the commitment ceremony or the recommitment ceremony. And the question is, will they be faithful to God alone? Will they be faithful to God alone? So have a look with me at chapter 24, verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. Now I want to stop there because Shechem is significant. Shechem was the place where God made the promise to Abraham that he would receive all this land as his inheritance. And so just by being at this place, Shechem, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. It's, it's, this is the place where the promise was made. And so Joshua then, as he goes on, addresses the people on behalf of God. He speaks, he, speaks, uh, he speaks God's word in the first person. And so God, through Joshua, says, he, he basically reminds them of his faithfulness to them. And so verse 3, he reminds them, I am the God who promised Abraham to bless him. Verse 5, I am the God who saved you, my people, from Egypt. In verse 8, he says, I'm the God who defeated any opposition on your way from Egypt up to the promised land. I took out any opposition in your way. I've defeated them in the promised land. Verse 11, I'm the God who brought you into the promised land and defeated all your enemies. And then he kind of comes to a summation in verse 13. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And so God is recounting to Israel, standing before them through Joshua, the history of his salvation plan, the history of them saving them. He's saying to them, I'm the one who loved you. I'm the one who blessed you. 
I'm the one who gave, remained faithful to you and to my promises and brought you into this land of blessing. And so after that, then Joshua speaks to the people and he challenges them to put their trust, to remain faithful to God. So verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is saying to them, here's the commitment ceremony here. He's saying, will you be faithful to the God who has been faithful to you? You can't worship this God alongside other gods. Now notice it says the God your forefathers worshipped in Egypt. It was not that from Genesis 12 with Abraham, all of God's people, all of Abraham's family remained completely devoted to him. Right through the story, you've got these mentions time after time that they carried idols with them of gods of the other nations. And so here he's saying, you worship the gods in Egypt, the other gods in Egypt, you had idols for them. And even when you left Egypt, when this God saved you, you, you still bought those gods. And later on the passage, Joshua is going to say to them, put away the idols from among you. So Abraham's family, right throughout this period, still had idols in their backpacks. Joshua says, you can't be married to this God, an exclusive relation to this God, and have your own other gods on the side. Verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And so this is a good response, isn't it? That people say, yes, you've given us the commitment ceremony here. You've challenged us. Who are we going to serve? Yes, we're going to faithfully serve God. We will be faithful to him alone. We'll get rid of all the other gods. And so at this point, you expect Joshua to go, yes, my speech was effective at work. The people are on board. Let's move forward happily ever after. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. You are not able to serve the Lord. Now, the people say, yes, we will. <laughs> Joshua says, no, you can't. It's a little bit discouraging, isn't it? It's not, it's not the inspiring speech you're expecting at the end of his life. Why does he say it? Well, he keeps going. He gives three reasons here. First, he says, he is a holy God. It's the reason that we could not remain in the presence of God in the garden because God is holy, he's perfect, he's just, he's unique. He cannot be in the presence of unholy, unfaithful people who reject him. All right, he is a holy God. Keep reading. He says, he is a jealous God. Now, most people, when they think about jealousy, think of, we talk about jealousy as the green monster, don't we? It's, it's a negative thing to be jealous. But the reality is, there is a right jealousy. There is a good jealousy. If Kelly, for instance, was to have an affair, it would be right for me to be jealous. It would be wrong for me to say, I don't really care. It's right for me to want her to be married to me alone. In fact, it's actually best for her to be in an exclusive, faithful relationship to, with me. And the same is true with God. God faithfully created a special relationship of blessing with this people. He covenanted with them. 
And the God of that covenant is jealous that they are faithful to him alone. Now, now it's not a power thing. It's not that God needs people worshipping his God or he feels he has a bad day. God knows the best thing for them as the people of God is to be faithful to him, is to find him as their source of goodness because he is the ultimate source of goodness in this world. And so keep reading verse 19. He says, he will not, the third thing, he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. Now, this is a strange one, isn't it? Because we know, even back in the book of Leviticus, it's very clear, clear God forgives sins. And yet he says, he says, he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. So how do we make sense of that? Now, what's really important to know here, and what I figured out during the week, was that the word there for forgiveness is, is also translated bear with or put up with. Okay, So I think that's more of what it's saying here. It's saying God will not put up with your rejection of him to serve other gods. He will not sweep your unfaithful idolatry under the carpet and just go, yeah, whatever, and be passive. Joshua says, you won't be able to serve him alone. He is holy. He is jealous. He will not put up with anything less than 100% faithfulness. Now, I actually think there's another reason why he says you can't do it. And I think the reason is this. It is to humble them to live by grace. See, it's really easy when the challenge is put forth to God's people to go, yeah, yeah, we can do it. Yeah, we, we can do it. And really mean by that, we can do it in our own strength, in our willpower. We can do it because we have it within ourselves. Yet God has said right throughout that they can follow him only by faith, only by the grace of God. And so by Joshua saying you can't do it, it's meant to put them on their knees that they might understand that only by trusting in God's provision of forgiveness in the, in the sacrificial system, in the law, and the forgiveness of sins through that, that they continue in relationship with God. See, they didn't need faith just to enter into the land. They need to live by faith to remain in the land as well. The people say we can. Joshua says you can't. The people respond, verse 21. No, we will serve the Lord. And then later on, he says, Joshua then says, well, you're going to be held to that promise. You witness against yourself there. Verse 24, he says, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And so then Joshua writes down the promises. They make a formal commitment to serve God alone. And after this, Joshua dies. And then we have the final verse in verse 31. It says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Now, again, it's happily ever after, isn't it? You thought it was before and it kind of wasn't. Now it is again, happily ever after. Now, does it mean they were perfect because they served throughout the lifetime of Joshua? No. I think it means that they continue to live by faith during Joshua's generation of the provision of the Old Testament covenant of, of, of God providing forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of animals, that God would remain amongst them because of that provision. But after Joshua's generation, it kind of ends. Uh, turn one page over to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, After that whole generation, so that's Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their fathers, Another generation grew up, 
who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, that's another God. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And so what Joshua says was right. They couldn't serve God alone. They couldn't be faithful to God alone. And, and that's the story. That's the rest of the story of the Old Testament. God's people, as you go through, serve other gods. And so 800 years later, in the same way they came into the land, they're now removed from the land by God. Because they were not faithful to God alone. Now, there, oh, there is nothing more gut-wrenching as a pastor than sitting down with someone when they hear those words that their spouse has cheated on them, has committed adultery. And so it's sad to say I've heard it a handful of times as a pastor, but when you're in that moment, the pain and the grief and the disbelief and the anger it's just, it's so incredibly intense and powerful. Now, the Bible claims that day after day, that's what we do to God. That's one of the images of what we as human beings do to God. You see, God did not just commit himself to Abraham's family to be in like a marriage relationship with them, to be in this exclusive relationship with them. The Bible says that right from the beginning in creation, God made a covenant with all of humanity. When he made us, he covenanted, he committed to faithfully bless us in the world in relationship with him. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, we decided we don't want to be in this exclusive relationship. We consistently say to God, we're not interested in your exclusive love we want other lovers. We want to live for ourselves and for anything that makes us feel good. And so what do we do? Well, we live for work. We live for sport. We live for our friends. We live for a certain relationship. We live for our kids. And all those things are good things. But we make those things God things. Things that we live for, things that are the centre of our lives, they become our top priorities. And God, our spouse, is ignored. God, our spouse, is forgotten. God, our spouse, is rejected. See, the first half of the Bible is there to help us see that the problem of humanity is that we cheat on the God who is faithful to us. The God who gives us all the good things like work and family and kids and relationships. We cheat on him. We, we ignore him. We reject him. And we're unfaithful to him. And so as you come to the end of the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible in a sense, the question is, how can an unfaithful people ever be restored to relationship with a faithful God? How can a holy and just God bear with or put up with our sin? How can a husband or wife put up with an adulterous spouse? And the answer for God is Jesus. And this is how it goes. God's solution in not being able to bear with our sin is for his son Jesus to bear our sin. God's solution 
solution to not being able to bear with or put up with our sin because of his justice was for his son to bear our sin, to take the justice. For Jesus, as he lived on this earth, he lived a perfectly faithful life in relation to his his father. Yet on the cross, Jesus bore our sin on his shoulders all the times we unconsciously cheat on God and live for ourselves and people and things. What God did was he took the grief and pain of our adultery into his very relationship between father and son. And so Jesus endures God the Father's anger and justice for our unfaithfulness. So that you and I don't have to. So that even though we are unfaithful through trust in Jesus, we're united to him and we, are, we stand before God in a right, faithful relationship because of trust in Jesus. Now, this has massive implications. And the big one this morning is if you have not put your trust in Jesus and you're watching this today, whether you recognize it or not, you are cheating on the God who made you, who loves you. You're rejecting the one who knows you and loves you more than you will ever know. The one who, in spite of your cheating, sent his son to take the punishment your sin deserved. Who, in a sense, is in tears, screaming out in pages, from, in, in the words from the Bible, I love you. I love you. Please come home. Come home. Be faithful to me. If God is calling you home this morning, then all you need to do is talk to him. Talk to him. Tell him you are sorry for your unfaithfulness and you want to come home. But if today you are already committed to Jesus in that relationship, then then what I want to do this morning is just remind you that God is still jealous for you. He's still jealous, God. I'm going to read to you from James chapter 4. James is writing to a group of people that he says are double-minded. So they're living for God, but then they've got these other worldly things they're living for on the side as well. They're kind of living for two things at once. They're double-minded, James says. And so he says to them really strongly in James 4 verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? If you put your trust in Jesus, then you are forgiven. All your unfaithfulness is forgiven because of Jesus. Yet God is not content with that. He's not content that you've had all your sins forgiven and one day you're going to be within heaven. You have been given God's spirit now to live in you, to mark you as his child, so that you know you are his and you belong exclusively to him. And so because you have that spirit and you're in that unique relationship, it's saying here that the spirit that he made to dwell in us yearns jealously for us. 
God yearns for you, your whole of you, every part of your life to be exclusively lived for him. See, when Christians sin, sometimes we can get the impression that God is angry at us. That God's response is anger. He's up there in heaven. He's really angry or that he's really, really disappointed. He puts on his disappointed face. Oh, man, why did you do that? The reality is when we sin as Christians, although we're completely forgiven, God at the same time yearns jealously for us to be faithful to him in everything. And so if you have put your trust in Christ today, I want to ask you the question, is your love for God directing every part of your life? Do you recognize that he wants every part of it? That he's unhappy with double-mindedness, where you go to church on Sunday and you do the Christian thing at various points in your life, and then you live a completely separate life in the way you want over here, in, in your work or in a certain relationship. And God wants all of you. He yearns jealously for all of you. He wants us to come to him and take every part of our being as we grow in our lives and say, Lord, be Lord of it all. Let me love you with my whole being. Let me live for you. Let me pray. Father God, we're just so thankful that you are a God who is jealous. Because if you were not jealous for us, then you would have just in apathy let us wander off as we wanted to. That as we ran away from you and we sought other gods and we sought to live for ourselves, you would have just gone, yeah, okay, that's fine. But you because you are a loving God and a jealous God, have made a way for us to come back to you. And you've done it through the most extraordinary, costly way possible, the death of your son. And so, Father, for those people here today who have not recognized their their adultery against you, Father, I pray they would hear your cries to come home. And for us who have come home, Father, we pray that we would recognize that you are still that jealous God, that there is no part of our lives that you do not want ownership over, that you do not want us to surrender to you. And so, Father, point out to us, Holy Spirit, right now, point out to us those areas of our lives that we're allowing the world and what we want to direct our lives and not you. Help us submit everything to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.